I'm David Becker, and I'm a licensed clinical social worker. This is Masters of Social Work. Welcome to a series of conversations with leaders in the field of mental health. Join me as we go behind the scenes and learn from leading therapists about how to accomplish personal growth, hear their stories, their journeys, and learn from their wisdom. Masters of Social Work is brought to you by the Sarishnir Wurzweiler Social Work Program. For more information, please visit sarahsch.com. That's S-A-R-A-S-C-H dot com. Or call 718-633-8557, extension 37. J. Russell Ramsey is a professor of clinical psychology and psychiatry at the University of Pennsylvania's Perelman School of Medicine, where he directs the school's adult ADHD treatment and research program. He's the author of myriad articles about adult ADHD and several books, including his latest, Rethinking Adult ADHD, Helping Clients Turn Intentions into Actions. I recently spoke with Dr. Ramsey, and I started by warning him that I have 10,000 questions and I might be in true ADHD style, jumping from topic to topic. I've, I've taken my Dramamine. I'm good to go. <laughs> so first of all, a little bit about you. Where did you grow up? What's the story? I ended up in a big circle. I'm living close to where I grew up in southeastern Pennsylvania, greater Philadelphia area. College at the University of Miami. Took me a couple years to get accepted to graduate school. I always like sharing that for anybody out there because clinical psychology programs were tough to get into. And Yeah, I think I got into psychology undergrad. I took this biological basis of behavior, and I found it really fascinating and thought this could be interesting for a long time. Ended up as a psych major, went to graduate school, Pacific Graduate School of Psychology, now called Palo Alto University in the Bay Area. Lived in some interesting places and a a wide array of people, and ended up doing a postdoctoral fellowship at the Center for Cognitive Therapy at Penn, Now, you will notice the letters ADHD have not shown up at all yet. I had no interest in it. That's not why I went to Penn. A couple years in, got connected with Dr. Tony Rostain, a very noted child psychiatrist in the Philadelphia area. And at the time we met, he was also the head of the adult psychiatry training program at Penn. And he had started the child ADHD program at the Children's Hospital of Philadelphia and had a discussion with me about the possibility of starting an adult adult ADHD program. And he was saying he could handle the medications, but it would seem like we need some sort of psychosocial treatment and would I be interested? And my line about the two of us is, everything interests both of us and we can't say no to work. So I shrugged my shoulders and said, sure. And that was the birth of the Penn Adult ADHD program and just dove into the literature and hopefully have contributed a little bit. The date of that first meeting was March 8th, 1999. So in a couple months, we'll be entering our 24th year, or 25th year, I'm sorry, of the Penn Adult ADHD program. Um, And 25 years ago, I I feel like we knew a lot less about ADHD than we do now. Very much so. I I say I'm dispositionally lazy, so it was nice. I only had about eight outcome studies, but maybe not even that in terms of therapy for adult ADHD. I just wonder, What age bracket would you put adults with ADHD that are undiagnosed? 25 years ago, they were kids, right? And we were missing it as children. So is it like the 30-year-olds, the 40-year-olds? Where do you see like the highest level? We never ran the numbers on it, but anecdotally, I'd say there was a trimodal distribution when we started. 
when we started our program and started seeing patients, it was just a two-person operation, and it was generally stakeholders on campus. So it's a biased sample, but I'd say probably about two out of three of our patients were college students, and that dealing with the transition to college was sort of like early intervention for adult ADHD. So that would be one. The young adults who might have, their ADHD might have been masked, you know, it never got picked up on, or there'd be things like, oh, maybe we should do an evaluation, but the school year has started off okay, so we'll get around to it later, and it, you know, this, that, and the other thing. The second would be the 20-somethings, early 30-somethings, out in life for a while, but repeatedly starting over. Oh, I got to start over in a new job, or I've got to finish that class, or I've still got this degree, that final paper to hand in. And the recognition or the external feedback that, you know what, I'm treading water here. Then there would be the middle-aged adults who go, I'm getting by, but it's getting a lot harder. I can't keep this up. And however we want to move it forward, some of these groups are now, which is probably the fourth pulse, if you will, the, the senior adults you know, with ADHD, or whether they were identified earlier and are entering that another transition, or many people coming to us for the first time to say, I've been wondering about this for a long time, and I thought things would get easier once I retired, or you know, maybe retired but taking on other responsibilities like uh, caring for adult children, caring for aging parents, people with family members with health issues that require still some ongoing organization time management, things like that. All right. So I want to go back. Let's go basic. Sure. How do you conceptualize ADHD? And I'm asking, I guess, a, a general question, but a little bit of a specific question, because I think the two most common terms I hear out there are the interest-based nervous system concept and then the disorder of executive function. Yeah, I'm a lumper, not a splitter. I mean, I'll refer to it for brevity as, a, you know, if we want to take it off the slide, a neurodevelopmental syndrome of executive functioning difficulties or executive dysfunction. That's where my eyes glaze over. <laughs> the neurodevelopmental, I'm like, done. Well, yeah, that's the $25 an hour <laughs> description. But really, what are the executive functions? It's how efficiently do you do what you set out to do? And people will say, well, but what about inattention, hyperactivity, and impulsivity? Well, they're bundled in there. You know, the inattention domain, I think that was the proxy for the executive functions and the official diagnostic criteria, but it was incomplete. And it overlaps a bit, the time management, the disorganization, procrastination to a degree. And then the hot executive functions are more the emotional dysregulation, the quick decision-making, the impulsivity. And impulsivity in the general research on procrastination is considered a factor there. I know I should be doing this, but let me do this for a minute. That's impulsivity. That's the grown-up impulsivity. And the things like reward discounting, being able to persist on the larger, later rewards rather than the smaller, sooner, those are some different systems and the interest networks, but I view them as within that family. So people researching in those other areas will say, this is different from the executive functions. We have the default mode network and being able to shift attention and sustain it and not switch too much because there's metabolism costs, energy costs of frequent switching you know, between tasks. Anyway, I'm, I'm going broad, but the, the executive functions are a nice umbrella term that captures some of the common time management, disorganization, procrastination, impulsivity, and emotion features. I, what I think what I'm hearing from you is Having ADHD is really struggling with time management, 
task initiation, getting started, and getting things done. Right. So the, I guess the question I get the most is, who doesn't struggle with task initiation? Even neurotypical people, and I feel like sometimes I can feel bad for them because they're neurotypical. That's no fun. So aren't we all ADHD? They struggle in lowercase font. Individuals with ADHD or any other, it could be from a brain injury, but that would be different, but is uppercase font in terms of more difficulties eventually going, okay, enough is enough. I really need to get started now before the deadline so I'm not pulling an all-nighter as, if we will, neurotypicals or whatever phrase we want to use, are generally able to do that without facing negative consequences. Whereas folks with ADHD, as you know, as a group, and there's a highly diverse spread there, yeah. report difficulties saying, no, I missed a job interview. I missed the deadline, so I had to wait for another go-around to apply to school. There are some time, financial costs, and pain points that are beyond maybe, for lack of a better phrase, the inconveniences of, yeah, I said I was going to start this morning and I puttered around for a while and it took me a couple hours before I got started, but I got started, I got done, and I was on track both for the one thing and able to balance all the other roles I have and have to fill versus those are some of the recurring struggles. So with, with ADHD, it's more that you're just not functioning. You can't, you can never choose. I, I'm a, a cognitive therapist, so I can't say never. It's part of my union dues, but it's a harder struggle. It comes up more often and there's more often that there's a cost to the struggle. It's not like gearing up and we can eventually get started within a, a reasonable window you know, we all have executive functions. I remind people that. It's a continuum. It's dimensional. The fancy phrase is it's a quantitative difference, not a qualitative difference. It's a matter of degree, not of kind. Well, what's a difference of kind? Somebody who might have manic episodes, excessive energy, risky behavior, that's a different mood state than most people have. Well, I get energized. Yeah, but that's on a continuum of you're having a really good day. You slept well. You had a couple days off. You're getting a lot done. You're energized. That's really different from a manic episode where somebody who doesn't gamble goes and gambles or is driving recklessly. So ADHD is a dimension where it'll feel familiar to a lot of people, but the degree, the magnitude of the difficulties, where do you draw the line? That's something always up for discussion. That's really the heart of the question because all adults I meet ask the same question. I'm, I'm often meeting children, and one of the parents can likely be ADHD. Not always, but often. And often enough, they're undiagnosed. And they're like, okay, so yeah, so I, I struggle. Like, I, I'll ask the question, you know, so which one of you, like, jokes about being ADHD? And I get the same response every time. One spouse points at the other spouse exaggeratedly like, yeah, him, he's the one, right? Or her, either way, it doesn't, you know, it doesn't really matter. So I guess what I'm hearing is that it's really the degree of the struggle and when it's interrupting functioning to the point that you're experiencing negative outcomes on a frequent level, you're losing your job, you're not finishing tasks even after the deadlines, et cetera, then you know that perhaps there's something here. You're getting, you know, there's some sort of a paper trail that, you know, things are difficult. And even individuals who might struggle periodically 
If you've never had ADHD, but you struggle with insomnia, a stretch of insomnia for a month, your executive functioning will go down, or a really busy time at work. So these episodic things, somebody has COVID for a while, their executive functioning goes down. Usually people, when you get in there and ask in an evaluation, they're able to say, well, no, there are these pockets where things come up, but they're relatively limited or a particular task, you know, a singular task that I put off, generally fulfilling roles. Now, individuals with ADHD can be fulfilling roles, but they can say, I can't sit through a movie. I'm spending a lot of my personal time catching up on the work I should have done at the office. So the office thinks I'm fine. But the people in my personal life, it's like, oh, I have to catch up to you at the restaurant because I have to catch up on the things that, yeah, compensating, compensating. Um, yeah. the masking that goes into it. And this is also another thing we don't think about ADHD. This is part of the increasing studies finding higher rates of fatigue because the mental, the task switching, there's metabolism costs of that. Like one colleague said, working twice as hard for half as much the late Steve Cobbs, one of the early physicians who specialized in adults with ADHD. And I would say three times as hard for a quarter as much. <laughs> right. Well, so you know what? If you wanted a nice, succinct, easy to remember uh, description, that would be one. And it also um, flies in the face of the myth, well, these are people looking for a lazy, uh, an easy way out. It's lazy. No, I mean, working twice as hard just to keep your head above water, that's working hard. Because you're struggling at the point of performance. You're just stuck yes. in the moment of making poor choices. Right. That's, that's another phrase like ADHD is not a knowledge problem. Like I'll tell my clients, if we're working on your procrastination and all I bring to the table is, you know, you really need to start earlier, sue me for malpractice, please. You know that. You plan to not procrastinate. But at the moment, that's that impulsivity. Well... Tell you what, let me catch up on emails first. Yes, I'll get that out of the way. Then I'll be in the mood to do this task. You'll never be in the mood to do that task. With a slight detour to YouTube, 12 hours. Yes, uh, right. Well, I, I just catch up, I caught up on my emails. I deserve a break before I, which if we can do it, that's perfectly fine. But it's the, whatever, we're at, the executive uh, dysfunction, the reward processing difficulties, the interest issues, it makes it harder. There's a lot more energy being burned getting started and then keeping going. So what I'm hearing is, and I, I don't know if I'm quoting the most up-to-date accurate research, but what I'm hearing is that ADHD symptoms continue into adulthood, almost always. Like maybe it's 80% or 90%. They don't just go away and disappear. But throughout adulthood, they wax and wane. Yes. So depending on the stressors of your life, how busy you are, you may have periods where you're like, kind of okay. You know, I got this, I got this ADHD thing. And then, I don't know, you start to ha having children, you have a few kids, you're managing a house, running the job. Maybe you have two jobs and some hobbies. And next thing you know, you're falling apart. I do sometimes see that like kind of episodic nature. There is a study supporting that now. Um, Maggie Sibley and colleagues, and she's done a lot of wonderful work, including a CBT approach for adolescents. They tracked the children who went through the MTA study, the largest outcome study for children looking at uh, intense behavior treatment, medications, and a combination. And they followed up evaluations every couple years into young adulthood, and that's what they found. There was 90% persistence generally an undulating course, maybe a little bit above the diagnostic threshold or just below, but eventually came up. And only about 10% had persistent remission into adulthood. So that observation you had actually had some, some evidence behind it. So that brings me to another question. 
co-recording disorders, I started off hearing that it was 60%. Now I'm, I'm hearing higher numbers. Like there's a co-recording disorder 80% of the time. And I find this to be a challenging treatment because too often I feel like we say like, oh, he's ADHD, like let's get him on the medication. And then we're missing the co-recording disorder. So how do you see that? Sometimes I see it the reverse because there's not a lot of training in ADHD in medical school or graduate training. And this is even in places where there's an ADHD expert being the chair of the department, but they don't necessarily get to set the agenda, the curriculum themselves. But the depression and anxiety, which are you know, sort of in a race one or two of the most common coexisting, at least for psychology, that's like treating the common cold. Everybody gets trained in it. So what's the phrase? If all you have is a hammer, you see a lot of nails. So there's a lot of people who may go and do okay and I think we get more and more people saying, yeah, I, I hit a wall in my anxiety or, or depression treatment. They come in, we see like ADHD was a missing piece because depression and anxiety can affect executive functioning too, but not as much as ADHD. And so they come in and the other side, yes, there's an interesting question. There can be a true comorbidity. Somebody has ADHD and obsessive compulsive disorder. It's almost like two compartments that you can go, I'm going to go do the exposure response prevention for OCD, and then I can do my ADHD treatment. A lot of times this comorbidity, it stems from ADHD. Depression, the sense of loss, negative sense of self comes from the frustrations often encounter with ADHD. You're so smart. If you only worked harder or paid attention in class better, you could do so much better. Or you don't like reading? Reading's great. Try harder, try harder. Try harder, try harder. And, and you know, I don't want to be too hard because people are well-meaning and it's hard to see. And a, a core feature of anxiety we're finding is uncertainty or an intolerance of uncertainty. And for my money, ADHD is an uncertainty generator. I know I can do it, but will I be able to get myself to do it when I need to do it? The point of performance again. So I think you've correctly identified a struggle in the field that there isn't a lot of specific training about ADHD, right? So many clinicians, I feel like in their heads, they're like, okay, he's ADHD or she's ADHD. Let me send them for medication because medication is a first line intervention for ADHD. And then we'll do therapy as usual, right? So if I'm treating anxiety from the CBT model or if I'm doing couples work with the Gottman approach and hopefully the medication will kick in, we'll get, you know, pharmacology on board, but often it doesn't seem to work. So how do you conceptualize treatment? Is medication the first-line intervention? I know that the research is showing that medication with behavioral is a potent combination. I don't even know what that means. Get me started. Medications can be highly effective. I like how um, Steve Verone and Kevin Anschel, they did a paper on narrowband treatments and broadband treatments. Medication would be a broadband treatment. It targets the core symptoms of ADHD and then hopefully has wide-ranging effects. So for some people, and you've heard the stories, I've seen it where, you know, somebody's working really hard in CBT and making progress, but then they get the medication consultation. Then it's like, wow, I didn't realize it could be this way. All of a sudden they're able to focus and now they're getting back to reading because they're not all over the place. It has the downstream effects on the behaviors. They're not procrastinating as much. They're getting started earlier on it and things like that. The narrow band treatments and I consider this with cognitive behavioral therapy and coaching, we're really not directly targeting symptoms. 
Like, I'm not going, okay, we're going to work on attention today. Look at my nose for 10 seconds. Let's see if we can get that up to 15 or 20 by the end of the session. Go forward and pay attention better. You've just doubled your attention rate. And let's just see if it persists. We're talking about the procrastination, the lateness, the disorganization, the difficulties with the partner, um, being told you, you don't listen to me when I talk to you, all, the, all those behavioral. It's a little bit of attention, but more about can you have this conversation in a place where there's not a TV above the bar at the restaurant or something like that that you keep looking at? Attentional hygiene, if you will. So that's the target of CBT. Now, sometimes medications can help with the attention and the core symptoms, but people still procrastinate. Or the college student is able to pay attention on reading better, but they don't automatically pick up Beowulf for their literature course. They're reading something else. The motivation didn't come in yet. Yeah, exactly, exactly. So that's where there, there are some hacks and ways to generate you know, motivation. So that's where that combined treatment can be helpful. Okay, but then there are different disciplines. There is uh, therapists and coaches. So then... Are therapists doing coaching to be effective? Is it different than standard therapy? There's a lot of overlap. Friend and colleague David Gawork and I have done some sessions on this at conferences, and I think he has like a video of one on his website. There's a lot of overlap. There is a whole like field of coaching from executive coaching and from which ADHD grew. Actually, I think it started as a metaphor in the book Driven to Distraction. I think Hallowell and Rady said, what adults with ADHD need is something akin to a coach, somebody to help keep them on track during the day. So there's no trade secrets in coping with ADHD. Shh, don't tell anybody. We tell our clients to use a planner. It's an implementation problem. It's a performance problem. I think there is a, a big overlap in CBT and coaching where it is about the implementation of the workarounds, the coping strategies, personalization of it. There, there's differences in training and things like that. Right, but, but essentially, therapists working with clients with ADHD, so you can work on the anxiety through the CBT lens, you can work on yes. depression through the CBT lens, but as far as executive function, how can you help someone to function better then we're, we're in practical, skills-based, really almost coaching. Yes. You know, I, I consider our CBT approach, if I have to differentiate it from some of the other ones out there, which I highly respect and everybody has something to offer, very implementation-focused. Now, everybody's going to say, well, yes, we want our clients to use these, so we're implementation-focused too. But there's a line of research in the self-regulation literature about implementation intention strategies that I think we've integrated from early on. And really using the CBT, like one of the coping mantras is defining tasks specifically. Oh, I got to do homework. What homework assignment do you have to do? What is the nature of the homework assignment? Let's make it specific because doing homework is broad, vague, and nonspecific. Doing my 10 econ problems, how are we going to define doing your econ problems in doable, actionable terms. Now, it may not be the actual problems, but how are you going to get yourself in a situation to do it? I'm going to sit down at my desk. I'm going to go to the library. I'm going to sit with a study partner who's going to be working on different assignments to at least increase the likelihood of getting engaged. And then there are specific pivot points. All right, when and where are you going to do this? And let's shrink this down to rather than, okay, I'll get around to this eventually, like the specificity. And I think that's how we bring the CBT to the coping skills. And with coaching, I feel like maybe coaches are doing something a little bit different in that there's a follow-up protocol. 
meaning therapists are like, you come for a 45 minute session, we come out with a plan, come back next week, tell me how it went, and coaches are maybe checking in through the week. I'd, I'd agree with that, even though there were some studies of CBT where they would, in between the sessions, they would have a, a coach call, pretty much checking in on any difficulties with the between sessions tasks, like a little problem solving in between. And coaching, at least to date, even though this may change, is not a licensed profession. They had a lot more leeway in terms of the texting, reaching out, the multiple ways to interact and across state lines. So you could coach remotely before some of that's changing in my field with the pandemic. So I think, yes, they were early to the game on that context-based, um, more flexibility in the follow sooner follow-up rather than the therapy week. Can you be an effective helper for ADHD or a coach for ADHD if you don't have it yourself? I'd say, yeah, but getting trained in it, sitting across from a lot of people. And, and I think that's like one of the things and I'll talk about in the therapeutic alliance, and I'm sure it's in the case in the coaching alliance, even if you don't have it yourself, being able to empathize with it and you hear the struggles where people go, yeah, they're upset with me. I didn't do it on purpose. I said it because I was frustrated. I wanted to bring it back. I mean, anybody could do that, but it happens more often for folks with ADHD. It was an interesting question. I think there was a paper in grad school. Do you have to be one to treat one? Yeah. Talking about like addictions and things like that. So, But ADHD, I feel, is a little different because with ADHD, sometimes it's almost impossible to wrap your head around it if you don't have it. Every adult I've ever treated, I ask the same question and I get the same answer. What were your report cards like as a child in elementary school? And they all say the same exact thing. You mentioned it earlier. They say, they told me I have enormous potential. And if I would just apply myself and try harder, I would do amazing, right? So you just have to try harder, try harder, try harder, try harder, try harder, try harder. And trying harder doesn't work. But if someone doesn't have ADHD, it's so hard to accept that. So in the context of relationships, the non-ADHD spouse can be educated on ADHD and can understand it and can get it and can do a lot of self-work and acceptance and okay, my, let's say husband is ADHD, he's ADHD. Okay, it's great, he's ADHD. So it's explanation, it's not an excuse. This is why he's doing all these things, right? And it makes sense, it makes sense, it makes sense, it makes sense. And then he leaves the front door wide open and unlocked overnight and we get robbed. And I'm like, enough with ADHD, stop telling me it's ADHD. And I go back to square one. Right, I don't want to hear about your ADHD. Right. There's going to be individual differences. There'll be therapists and coaches who go, yeah, I just can't do it. Like, how do you pay attention? Well, you just do it. It's sort of like a sleep disorder. How do you fall asleep? You put your head on the pillow. I could put my head on the pillow now and not fall asleep. You close your eyes. You think of, you try to clear your mind. I just did that for a nanosecond just now, but I'm still awake. It's like, well, you just do it. And so, like, like I just said about that example about I didn't get the person to do their economics homework. I helped them get in the position where they could, and maybe then they're able to use some of the, okay, let me read the first question, and maybe get started and catch a ripple or a wave and maybe get a question done, and then maybe get some motivation. So, like I tell people, it, it's nothing magic. You've heard it all before, but we're really going to do it in a systematic way and also acknowledge how the cognitions can get in the way, even a brief like, oh, I don't want to do this, and acknowledging you will have those. Can you keep in mind in the moment with a coping card? You'll feel so much better half an hour from now if you can get like even a couple problems done. And it's a lot of work. 
I've noticed myself at times, like days I'm procrastinating, and I go, imagine if you missed the deadline or you didn't have your slides ready for the presentation. I can sort of imagine what would this times 10 be for that person. And this is where sometimes I'll use judicious self-disclosure in sessions, talking about something I procrastinated on and not saying, hey, I'm just like you. You know, it's just sort of like, you know what, I put off this phone call to a psychiatrist because they're a real doctor. And what if they don't agree with the diagnosis and uh, all these things? So I think if you're passionate about it, you can do it. But also it's, it's insightful for people. And, and when I'm working with somebody, I'm trying to be respectful of somebody who's not in the room. So maybe it's the partner who goes, left the door open, robbed. I really care for this person, but I can't live this way because they might have had their history of I had to deal with this with my family of origin and my father gambled and whatever. So they might have a different journey where they go, I tried to be accepting, but I can't stand this relationship anymore. So on a practical level, I want to get practical. What is your tre- like? What does the treatment protocol look like? So uh, you know, I'm a recently diagnosed adult with ADHD. I come to University of Pennsylvania, meet with Dr. Ramsey. Now what? How I would frame it is an adequate dose, and this comes from our early studies, 20 sessions over six months. And in some ways, the calendar time is more important than the number of sessions because you need enough time. Because usually, the first homework assignment might be like some sort of planning or activity scheduling, write down what you intend to do, leave buffer rooms. But most often it's dealing with some form of procrastination. So what are you finding? 20 sessions over six months. In a best case scenario, someone did really well. And six months later, what has he accomplished? How did it work and why? Well, from some of our data with the medicated group and a very small sample of unmedicated, measured by the the old Brown Attention Deficit Disorder Scale, it seemed like the initiation, getting started. That is what we emphasize, the engagement with tasks. Okay. And we can even think about your relationships as a series of relationship tasks. To boil it down to, I want to be a better partner, well, I want to make sure I close the door at night things like that. I think another goal in the therapeutic alliance is pointing out incremental progress because that doesn't mean that I got everything done. It can be, I had a really good morning, but then I never got around to this. So we want to give credit to the morning. Let's find how you work. Now there may be an external reality. Yes, you work at the hospital, your ID, you swipe in. So two minutes late is still late. Right. You're not 30 minutes late anymore. So you've done If that was a medication trial, you've gone from 30 down to two, fantastic. But HR is calling you because you're still late. So Dr. Ramsey, help me out. Uh, You know, I'm procrastinating. I keep procrastinating everything. What do I do? We run through and look at what specifically is it, let's be specific, that homework versus 10 economics problems. The valuation, why do you want to do this in the first place? And this, this draws a little bit on motivational interviewing. What's in it for you to do this? How does this fit into a bigger picture? And how can you maybe remember that at the time? I don't want to have to take this class again. I want to be able to watch the playoff games this weekend, so I want to have my homework done. Yeah, what do you have to do to actually do these things, you know, to do the homework? Where are you going to do it? Do you need a textbook? Is this online? Is this posting on the discussion board? What do you have to do? Talk me through the recipe of this couple steps, the sequencing of a task. You know, what is the recipe of the task? What do you have to do? Well, I have to open my textbook or log on. It's cognitive rehearsal. 
we're running through a simulation, but also breaking it down into actionable steps. It's really okay. like you're setting me up for success. You're preparing, you're helping me build motivation, right. we're developing- So we have the plan Saturday at 10 o'clock, you're going to the library, you're gonna have your textbook, you're gonna work on this for at least one problem or 30 minutes. And, I, and then I come back the next week and I say, Dr. Ramsey, plan was great. I got into my car, I went, I headed to the library, and then I passed by Starbucks. And I said, hey, Starbucks, I'll be so much more productive with the coffee, coffee's a stimulant. So I stopped into Starbucks, and then I met my friend, and then we started to discuss the Eagles game, and three hours later I headed home, and then I was like, oh, the library and the paper. So how am I fixing that? Well, going back to even that first meeting, once we have it down, it's like, okay, does this seem doable? Any problems with it? All right, what are all the things that could get in the way of doing this task? Now it's where... How are you going to think yourself out of it? You know, anything that could distract you on the way. You know, what if a friend stops by the library, you know, sees you at the library and stops by and talks with you? Prospective problem solving. What are your escape behaviors? Social media, Starbucks, you know, somebody else at the library, um, you're working at home, uh, taking the dog for a walk, things like that. This is part of all the problem solving. You, you could say... Okay, you're going to drive by Starbucks. Um, could you, you know, bring some coffee with you and take it into the library or get it? They could still pull into Starbucks. And, and you know what? Not all off-task is procrastination because it's informed decision-making. I was going to do this, but my old college roommate, their flight was canceled. They're in town. They want to have dinner. Sorry, let's wait for 20 more years till I get to see you face-to-face. -face. I, I have to unload the dishwasher right now or Dr. Ramsey's going to be angry. No, we, we change the play at the line of scrimmage and we go, I know I'm going to pay for this, but I want to do this. But we would generally rehash what happened and what can we do different about this. So we, we invest an enormous amount of effort in getting me to do my paper, but that's one task out of hundreds that I need to accomplish this week. So how does it generalize? The template is the same. Uh, this is self-serving, but in the Rethinking Adult ADHD book, there's the How You Don't Do Things worksheet. Now, it's a clumsy title, but I insisted on it because it came from reverse engineering what gets people off track, thinking about what are the actionable steps. And I'll use the, the cooking example for a recipe or sequence of steps. I can't cook. Can you take the saucepan out? Can you fill it with water? Can you put the spaghetti in? Blah, 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 yada, yada, yada. You cooked. Yo, the actionable small steps. We all know this. Our grandparents told us, break a large task down. But for individuals with ADHD, it's more explicit and effortful and externalized to a degree, at least a few steps to get like a running or a walking jump start to, okay, I'm at the library and Resignation is motivation. Oh, all right, let me just get the stupid things done so when I walk out of here, I don't have to think about it. So over the course of six months, you're seeing that clients are starting to generalize these skills and applying it on their own in other areas where you're not necessarily engaged in managing the process for them and planning it and preparing and filling out the worksheets. It just kind of become natural, becomes like a learned habit. Yes. But like with any habits, and especially for ADHD, there's going to be slip-ups. So part of it is normalizing. It's not whether that happens. It will happen for anybody. The relapse rate is 100%. But how do you handle it? And I say this like when I'm teaching um, colleagues about the CBT. The CBT, and especially the understanding with ADHD, I, even my CBT presentations start with these are the executive functions. You know, this is what we're helping with. These are the targets.
So it gives you a model for seeing ADHD. Are they paying attention? They cross their legs a few times. Does that meet the threshold for hyperactivity? No, it's the time management. It's a disorganization. And being able to listen for it in the descriptions. And the model also gives a template for adults with ADHD to go back and say, did I effectively value and consider the value of the task, why I wanted to do homework on Thursday. Did I have a go-to place or did I sort of say, oh, I'll do this while I'm watching TV and we know how well that works. We wanna go home from the library because that's the reward. Okay, I'm done. We don't wanna be in a place that we go, oh, I really like hanging out in the library. There's a lot of people and a lot of interesting stuff. So this is also the personalization of the sensitivities some people can work where there's other people, and that's helpful. Oh, there's other people doing homework here, too. I'm not the only one. So it is like a, a prime or a modeling. But somebody says, you know, if there's somebody, they could be 100 yards across the room. I'm looking up and looking at them. I have to be in a closed office with nobody else around me. So there is the individualization of this, yeah. How about your study? Because you mentioned the study earlier, and you said that you studied a lot of people who had gone through the, like this protocol program who were on medication and a smaller sample who were not on medication. I think there were 46. Now, it was an open study. It was not randomized, but it'd be sort of like they came in, they did our evaluation. They were going through medication treatment and the first 16 sessions of CBT and we had positive results. And then there was a study of five individuals for whom we had follow-up data who declined medications and just did the, the CBT alone. And that was where the, especially the task initiation. We never compared the two because the samples were just too, too different. But I would say probably the results were pretty similar. The non-medicated group, I think their difficulties were more circumscribed. I think we had fewer comorbidities. Can someone take medication and not need the executive function health that work? And can someone who doesn't take medication really benefit from it? Or do you really need both? Do, do you find that some people take the medication and hey, they don't need to come because it worked and they're doing great? Yes, I've, I've seen that. You know, sometimes it's the game changer, that's all it needs. I'm, I'm read, I'm focused now. One person told me uh, he used to get distracted like when he's driving and we get upset and like a little grumpy with his kids like in the minivan windows down, the seatbelt banging against the seat. It annoyed him. After the medications, he said, I hear it, but it doesn't bother me. I, I hear the distractions around me, but they don't pull me away. So that's all he needed. There was a study. It was a, a CBT-related re study. Cherkasova, I think it was the, the lead author several years ago. The same CBT trial. One group did it. I think it was 12 sessions, unmedicated, or one person had been medicated but was washed out for six months, so unmedicated. And another group was on stable medications, and so they both did the same protocol. At the end of treatment, they both did better, but the medicated group did significantly better. But they did, I think it was three- and six-month follow-ups. At the follow-ups, the non-medicated group caught up, and there were no significant differences between the groups. So that would be one where the skills help if employed— and they may take longer without medications to take hold. And that's why I said the six months is probably more important than the 20 sessions. But the medicated group got there quicker and maintained it at about the same level. On a macro level, what, what would you wish that everyone can know about ADHD? And I'm talking about clinicians and ther uh, therapists and, and even the general population. Like, what are we all missing? It's really hard to get your head around that somebody's attention drifts. I, I think it's hard for people to empathize with it. So understanding the range, 
that it's not intentional, that people do want to do this. They are working twice as hard for half as much. That medications taken as prescribed for ADHD are among the safest in, and I'm not a psychiatrist, but the safest we have, I think, in in all medicine in a way, not just in, in psychiatry and among the most effective. And so I guess along that is encouraging people to seek out help for it and and also the other professionals that there's a a lot of good that can be done because I think there's still probably not as high as it was before but probably less than half of people with ADHD are getting treatment and even that's probably overly generous it's probably even fewer than that Wow. I think in one of the early outcome studies around 2006, it was like only 10% of individuals with AD, adults with ADHD. But I think I, I heard recent estimates that it's probably improved a bit, but probably up about 20, 25%. So what do we do about that? There are groups working on this like Chad, Apsard, and, and who are doing primary physician education because most of the time people will go to their family doctor, their primary care provider for help. Okay. Both about the screening and referral, as well as, you know, some training in some more straightforward cases, you know, even the prescribing, which a, a lot of primary care docs, that's who's providing treatment across the, the time frame. But also the graduate and medical education, the people who will specialize in this. And I think there's been improvements because – we have a training program, um, Duke University, the Duke Adult ADHD program, and the child programs probably have it better because they've been around longer in child psychiatry, but it's been a, a long time coming. If we get them as children, we decrease the population of adults, so that's really nice. True. So the pediatricians True. are probably a key place to go. But I want to shift gears to the positive sides of ADHD. So what do you see as like the strengths of people with ADHD? Do you buy into that? Some people are into the ADHD is a superpower. Like, where do you stand on that? You know what? I, I, I've heard people with ADHD, you know, both do the superpower and other people going, ah, it's not a superpower for me. So, you know what? I think ADHD itself can interfere with the expression of gifts and they can be there. Now, I'm coming as a psychologist and clinical psychology Okay, I'll geek out a little bit. Leitner Whitmer was a psychologist at Penn who was first known to coin the term clinical psychology and also had the first psychology clinic at the University of Pennsylvania in 1896 in College Hall. And clinical psychology was to use the science of psychology to relieve human suffering. And probably the first patient was a child with uh, probably dyslexia. So that's where I come from. Now, Penn and Martin Seligman is also the home of, if you will, positive psychology. Let's look at the psychology of personal strengths, uh, flourishing, things like that. So I think it's a both and. And so ADHD being a performance problem gets in the way of performing strengths. But these are also important to acknowledge, assess, and we can draw on them. Hey, is there anything about you practicing your instrument that you could use to help you get your homework done? You know, things that you do to make sure that you practice when you don't feel like practicing, that you can remind yourself when you're sitting across from your math homework. And there's been some interesting qualitative studies with people who are doing well with ADHD and what works for them. And some things that came up, like being able to use their energy in positive ways and having outlets for it, more hands-on, project-oriented tasks, how things are defined where it's less maybe information and reading and things like that, hands-on learning by watching and doing. 
that context of goodness of fit, because there could be an accountant with ADHD who goes, I like it just being me and my work. I'm working with data. I like numbers. So if I get to do this and do this for a lot of different people or businesses, the data are a little different, even though the numbers are the same. That could be a good fit for somebody who really likes to get into one thing, because that is something we know from the metabolic costs of switching and going around. If we can sit down and get into our homework and stay on that for a reasonable amount of time, that is sort of like a nonstop flight. Okay, you take off and you land and you're done, as opposed to like the switching, which would be like, oh, I got three stopovers. So what would be a, a one-hour direct flight is now going to take me five hours, and that's a lot of fuel usage. Great analogy. So uh, I'm going to share a struggle that I find lots of adults have. Planners and planner apps and organizers and task managers. So th this is an experience that I've heard from so many adults with ADHD. They download an app or they buy a planner, and it's amazing. So they start to religiously write every task and every appointment, and they're on track, they're focused, they've never been better for two weeks. And then slowly but surely, you know, by week three, there's no planner. Because to consistently use a planner, you have to keep updating it, you have to babysit it, you have to take care of it, you have to input the data into the app. But when it's new and novel and exciting, so it's like, wow, this is great, this is working, this is awesome. But then that novelty wears off, and then it just becomes another task, maintaining the planner. How do you work with that? Working with like the choice of planner, making sure it's realistic. Also, the expectations for the planner. You have to enter the data for it to be useful, right? which takes time. And this is where we try to build up the habit of it. And going back to the valuation and how, yes, it is effortful, but when you have it or you review it at the start of your day, including things you want to do, the breaks in the middle of the day where you're going to get a rest and take, take care of other things, whatever. It is like Goldilocks. You could use it too little. I got this planner. I'm only using it for my meetings with Dr. Ramsey. Okay. I've got every single thing in there. Unloading the dishwasher, things like There might be a flow of your day where you go, okay, after dinner, clean up. And if there's a specific thing that, you, oh, I, I never get around to the dishwasher. Okay, then we will focus on that with a to-do list or something. So there are ways to augment it so everybody's different. So some people have a hybrid where for work I use my Outlook and then at home I'll use the paper planner. So that way I can just leave it in one place and go to it rather than carrying it with me or think. That's the clinical craft of anticipating difficulties. You got the buy-in, and this is not the negativity. That's like one of those cognitive reframes. It's not that it didn't work. You drifted away from using it, or you lost it, or you didn't get your 2023 planner, or it had too many other things in it, or too many spaces, not enough spaces. And it could be like a disposable, I have a sheet with the day. I fill it out. That's my day. Goes away at the end. No losing. Dr. Ramsey, first of all, it's so helpful. I'm learning so much. I have like one final question. If, if you had to pick like one thing, one tip, one suggestion, an adult with ADHD, how am I changing my life aside from see Dr. Ramsey, which is the obvious, <laughs> or read right, the right. book, Rethinking ADHD? What's the best way? I would say if it was down to one coping tip, my favorite and one I use a lot myself, an implementation intention strategy. This comes from the work of Peter Gallwitzer. So the notion behind it was some people have a goal-focused orientation. I want to get my homework done on time. And that goal 
improves their behavior. A lot of people, though, the goal is too far away from the outcome, i.e., the group we're talking about. So it's an if X, then Y statement. If I can sit down at my desk, then I can work on my homework for at least 10 minutes. It's a little bit of cognitive rehearsal. It's a coming together of a lot of things we've talked about. The theory behind it is the if X is a situation we're going to either face that could be a distraction or something that we want to do, initiation. And so the, the desk becomes the cue, and then we respond with goal-focused behavior Y. If I can sit down at my desk, then I can work on it. A way I use this, I'm like one of those middle-aged guys who was an athlete before and now rides a bike. Middle-aged man in Lycra, I think I heard it referred to as a mammal. <laughs> um, I can put off going outside for a bike ride on a glorious day because oh, I'm not in the mood. i got to go all the way down in the basement, all the way down. Our th- cognitions have a tone of voice. If I put air in my tires, I'll go out for a bike ride because now I'm touching the bike. And I have all the positive associations with it. We sit down at the desk with the intention of doing homework. We got over the hump. It's like Tom Hanks and Castaway paddling out above the wave and finally getting over. So if there's one coping strategy that's an encapsulation of a lot of what I work with with people, that and want to credit Peter Galwitzer and done a lot of research on it in the self-regulation literature. What's next for you? I'm actually working on the, a CBT workbook for adult ADHD and anxiety right now through New Harbinger. So it's Great. I think it's due to be out early 2024. It's yeah, it's there's a lot of ingredients in the mixing bowl, so it doesn't look too appetizing yet, but it's getting there. Is it intended for clinicians? It is meant to be a popular self-help guide, but you know, being a clinician, these are the types of books I would buy to get an understanding of it, but also to share with clients. So both looking forward so 2024 yeah that's when it's that's when it's due if everything goes right actually i I was just looking at a draft i actually have to cut down the words a little bit and are you procrastinating finishing the chapters no no it's not that i've got all the chapters i'm ahead yeah as you know from this podcast i I give too much information that i got especially for this one i got to scale it down and have more workbook exercises and so it's it's been a good it's been a good challenge J. Russell Ramsey is a professor of clinical psychology and psychiatry at the University of Pennsylvania's Perelman School of Medicine. Dr. Ramsey, thanks for talking to me, and good luck with the new book. Thank you, and you too. Thanks for all the great work with the podcast. Thanks for listening to Masters of Social Work. Please take a moment to like, subscribe, and share our podcast with your friends. Be sure to follow us for more conversations with leading therapists in the mental health community. I'm David Becker. Masters of Social Work is brought to you by the Sarah Schneer Wurzweiler Social Work Program. For more information, please visit sarahsch.com. That's S-A-R-A-S-C-H dot com. Or call 718-633-8557, extension 37.